0: so I'm probably about like 20 feet away from this edge here of this cliff and with my feet pointing downhill suddenly I feel my whole body stop and my whole body swings around and suddenly I'm facing towards the cliff and I come to a halt and the reason why I stopped was my toes had caught in some kind of little fissure in the ice there and that stopped me and my body weight swung me around and gravity pulled me down
1: but I was able to stop and This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun.
2: Holiday Flashback Episode 225, Day Hiking the American West with Brian Snyder. Hey guys, it's Travis. Kurt and I will be taking some time off over the holidays to spend with our families. So over the next few weeks, you'll be hearing some of our holiday flashbacks. These are our favorite episodes over the past year and a half, I guess. We'll be posting them on Mondays and Thursdays as usual. So keep tuning in and I'm sure there'll be a few of those that you haven't heard yourself. So I want you guys to have a safe and happy holidays and we'll see you after the new year. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis Parsons. Today on the line with me is Brian Snyder. Brian is a teacher and an author. He grew up uh, in upstate New York, and he found himself out here on the West Coast. Uh, He currently resides in Santa Barbara. And Brian uh, sent me his book, which is uh, an awesome book. I just got done reading it. Um, this book is called Further Off the Map, 53 Tales of Adventuring Along Rougher Edges of the American Wilderness. Um, that's his second book. His first book is uh, is Off the Map, 55 Weeks of Adventuring in the Great American Wilderness and Beyond. So the idea behind Brian's books is he gets out and he does a ton of hiking and exploring and Every chapter of his books is just another adventure, and I wanted to get him on the show because his stories and his books read like our podcasts do so Brian uh welcome to the show. Great, thanks for having me. Do me a favor and give our audience a little bit more of your background. You grew up in upstate New York, so you must have done a lot of exploration out there as well
0: yeah, upstate new York is a it's far away from New York City, so it's a kind of quiet part of the country and I really enjoyed living there because the backyards were great for exploring. It's, you know, upstate New York is a place where maybe there were more farms in the past. Um, there were more land that was cleared a lot more in the past. And a lot of the that farmland or ranch land was kind of marginal. It wasn't really good for farming. So a lot of people just packed up and eventually moved west. And then the forest grew back. And so if you go into people's backyards, you climb to the top of hilltops, you'll find lots of like ruined stone walls and like all rusty machinery. So everyone's backyard, it seems like was a good place to go exploring. And maybe that's what picked my interest um, in exp- <laughs> I guess in exploring. Uh, I was lucky to be able to go abroad to Scotland and study some Scottish literature. Cause when I was growing up, I did have the thoughts of, Hey, I wanted to become a writer. And then I went to Scotland and I did my, you know, I got in my fix for Scottish literature and Shakespearean plays. But then I kind of got seduced to the dark side because I discovered the Scottish Highlands and how many ruined castles were out there in the Highlands. And my dorm was right next to um, a train station. So I would get a whole bunch of friends. I learned about a castle, just grab a bunch of friends, jump on the train, get dropped off in the middle of nowhere and hike and try to find these uh, these ruined castles out there. And after a whole year of, <laughs> of this kind of adventure, I realized when I got back to the States, I I need to work in the outdoors. I somehow I need to be outdoors. So I discovered these places called outdoor science schools. They're, uh, they're kind of like summer camp type settings. But during the school year, a lot of these places that are summer camps in the summer during the school year, kids will leave regular school and come for like a week of outdoor science camp where people that are called environmental educators or naturalists will take groups of these kids and just teach them about. You know, geology, astronomy, astronomy, botany. And I discovered these jobs and I started working these jobs. And it's because these jobs tend to give you housing. It's pretty easy to to like, um, pack up and like migrate across the country that way. Work a, a season in one state, season in another state. So I gradually hopped my way from upstate New York to Maine and then to Indiana to Colorado, over to Hawaii and then back again to California and once I finally got to California, I kind of stayed there because these jobs don't pay very well, but California tends to pay the best. And <laughs> that's good. <laughs> yeah, I I wanted to make I love this job, but I wanted to make it sustainable. To be able to be able to to save up some money. And I found that if I could, you know, save up and be pretty cheap during the school year, I could take off for an entire summer and not have to work as long as when I would do my doing these cross-country travel trips. I was very frugal and I never paid for camping like I cooked for myself. I made every effort to keep my costs down. And so I was able to explore the the more rugged parts of, of the United States that way. And uh, along the way, I met a lot of people. I <laughs> made a lot of friends. I developed a big email list about two, about 250 people. And because I tended to get in a lot of scrapes and, um, have a lot of misadventures along the way, uh, I ended up having a pretty good blog going for a while. And this led to being able to write for a newspaper in my hometown. And these articles eventually got compiled into two books. Um, my first book was called off the map. The second was called further off the map. And yeah, as you said, like each chapter is, um, some kind of misadventure involving either, Cliffs frequently, or I guess, uh, or bears, or lightning, hypothermia, windstorms, um, dehydration—it's pretty much like the natural disaster of the week.
2: <laughs> it it is too. It reads well though. Yeah.
0: Uh, uh,
2: so the uh, uh, yeah. the when you mentioned you know being overseas and and exploring some of the castles and whatnot, I, that story actually escaped me. Uh, until you just mentioned it, it was because it's early in the book. Um, but that's uh, it, it was kind of the the piece that it seemed to kick off your. I don't know if I, I'd say it it kicked it off, but it definitely showed your your early explorer side. And and that was a a story about going inside a, a closed door just to to see what's going on, and this door
0: slams behind you. Tell tell that story a little bit. Uh, this story is in, to, in the introduction to my second my second book. And it involved when I was 15, I was lucky enough to be able to do this, this high school trip to uh, London and Paris. And on the way between these two places, we stopped at Canterbury Cathedral and it's huge, huge cathedral. The tours were kind of boring, um, to a 15 year old. And so I, you know, we're doing on the, I'm hanging back in the back of this tour group and I look to my left and there's this kind of stone corridor going off to one side. And so I'm like, oh, ditch the group. And I went off this corridor looking around and off to my left again, I see an open doorway and there's a spiral stone staircase on the other side. And I don't see anybody around me. So I, you know, I step inside there and I start to get two steps, maybe three steps up that staircase. And then the door to this tower closes behind me, slam. And I run back down the steps because it's pitch dark and I'm banging on the door because I don't want to be left in here or trapped in here. And nobody comes to the door. I'm freaking out a little bit, but gradually I calm down and I feel around the edges of the door and I discover a latch way up at the top. If I turn the latch, I can turn the doorknob, I can escape. And once I knew that, I was like, well, I guess I'm here. Might as well explore a little bit. (laughs) So I so I start up the spiral staircase, get to the very, very top of it. Um, I, By then, I can see a, there's a little bit of light coming through these thin slits of windows that are just grimy and, and dark, but got a little bit light. I go up to the very top. I find a door. Unfortunately, this door is modern, and it's locked, and so I can't get anywhere that way. So I go spiral staircase all the way down to where the lower door was, and then I just keep going down to the basement, and then the basement... lots of just like relics down there, all these dusty relics. And I'm stumbling over these and I wanted, I wish I had my camera. I wanted to get a picture or something, but I can't see. I'm going to hurt something or hurt myself. So I go back up up to the door and decide to let myself out. So turn the latch, open the doorknob, step back into that stone corridor, carefully close the door behind me. as soon as I close it, I turn around and like right there in front of me is this priest in a red robe. And he says, he says, "Uh, uh, can I help you? And, you know, a little 15 year old Brian just goes, not very convincingly, but says, "Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And without discussing anything with me further, this priest just takes me by the arm, kind of walks me down the stone, the stone corridor, walks me out to the main cathedral. Closes the gate behind me. This metal gate, and then I see on the door to this gate is a sign that says "Do not enter." But of course, I didn't see that on my way through. Um, so that's my first tower story. That wasn't the only time I got locked in a tower somewhere in the British Isles, but it was the very first time, and it was probably a representative of further escapades.
2: Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the be it happening again i guess i was thinking when i was reading it that you know at my age it would only happen once and i would not have gone exploring the rest of the building if i figured out the door open i'd have been the hell out of there <laughs> even <laughs> at this age i thought man this is uh, this guy's pretty good uh, 15 years old and he just ventures back in so good for you <laughs>
0: One thing I've always been drawn to is like the high points of things, like the high points of trees, uh, mountaintops, uh, rooftops. And so a stone staircase that just went up and up and up um, was pretty irresistible to me. Yeah,
2: well, it obviously led you into a life of climbing, which, uh, which I want to get into for sure. Before we do that, um, a lot of times we ask why you might encourage people to, to get out there and do this kind of stuff. Do you have any words of encouragement for people just to get out there and explore their
0: their their boundaries? Well, if you do read the book, it's – actually, I figured the book itself has lots of words of discouragement <laughs> because uh, the things that I – scripts I didn't get, get into are things I would not wish upon anybody. But what I would encourage people to do is to uh, to travel the West to do trips and do what I, ca- I call renegade car camping, and what other people call renegade car camping. It's also called dispersed camping. It's a way of traveling across the country for for very low cost. It's basically finding free campsites on public land, whether that's Forest Service land, BLM land, um, camping at reservoirs or um, near hot springs. Just finding the art of finding free campsites. It's it's a, If you get, if you find out a little bit about this, it's a great way to see the country. And so, I would encourage people to to do that and just realize that you can actually do this pretty cheaply. Uh, you don't have to pay for camping everywhere. I, uh, <laughs> you can uh, see some amazing places. And in fact, the places that you can camp for free are oftentimes so much better than the, the paid campgrounds. And I would encourage people to do this just because. You know, we ha- live in a country where there's amazing landscapes. We have such geographic diversity in this country, um, you know, from the Grand Canyon, of course, to like the North Cascades and their glacially sculpted um, features and mountaintops. There's, the, you know, the white sands of New Mexico to like the, um, the spires of Bryce Canyon. We have so many cool places. And in these places, I really consider to be very magical and I'm not a very religious person, but I do believe that there's magic out there in existence and it's really hard to see it sometimes in your everyday life. But if you go out there into nature and you see like the amazing, amazing richness and and wonder of the natural world, you know, if you get out there and renegade car camp and you experience magic out there, then I I think it becomes easier to see the magic in your daily life. And it becomes a little bit easier to, you know, believe that the world is a, the universe is a positive place. Right, right. Absolutely. So just for your own psych, psychological health, I recommend getting out there, you know, doing it however you can, um, and exploring the world, the Western, uh, the American West, just to enrich your your life and the life of people around you.
2: Yeah, and you're so right. I mean, I think a lot of people miss uh, miss out on how easy it is to to explore and to go camping here for free. You know, you talk to people overseas and in, in Europe, and they're amazed at at the amount of land we have here that's actually just open to go pull out on, you know, national forests, like you are saying, BLM land, um, that you can, you know, set up camp and enjoy it, and it doesn't cost you, and you can roam it and explore it. Um, I think a lot of people miss out on that piece of, of America, and it's uh, it's a shame, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's the one of the things I'm most proud of as, as an American, is that, like, our founding fathers and the early representatives Thought it was important to keep some land in federal ownership, and so we have this huge, uh, what's the word? <laughs> um, we have this huge legacy that was given to us of this public land, and so it's it's. Some people don't realize it's out there, and that you can take advantage of it in a way, and and you can you have the right to camp there for free in most of these places.
2: Yeah, I mean, you and I both grew up on the the East Coast, and I think the first time I, I really got an appreciation of, of the available land when it was when I moved out to Colorado. Um, everything on the East Coast we tried to, to do was just kind of so locked down. You know, everybody lo- owns land out there. So much of it is private and fenced off, and you really sure. got to be careful about where you're going out there. And then I got got to Colorado, and I realized how open things are. And it's like, holy cow, I can, I can go play. I mean, this is a massive backyard. And, you know, to your point, it's just, you know, get out there and – and just explore it. It's inexpensive. Take advantage of it and see where it takes you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's get into a little bit of uh, you know some of the stories from the book. I don't want to. I don't want to give away too much from the book, but it is a really good read. And I I got to be honest, your book inspired me to get out on my feet a little bit more than I have been in the past. You know, motorcycles have been my, my uh, adventure life over the past few years. I, I love getting back there on motorcycles. But the idea of slowing down, doing it inexpensively, uh, on your feet with a backpack, it just it, it's, it's escaped me too much lately. And after reading your book, I decided this is a summer I w- where I get back out there. So why don't mm-hmm. you share with our listeners, uh, try to inspire them as well, like you did me, um, maybe in about an amazing experience, one of the times that that really sticks in your head as being one of the best moments
0: if I can go do a like a, a story that's kind of takes place before the books i I guess one of the uh times I was absolutely most amazed by <laughs> what the, what nature can uh what nature has out there it was a time my very first cross country cross country trip before I was even writing. I uh, did a six-month cross-country trip with um, my girlfriend at the time, and we went, this is actually in Colorado, which is why I'm bringing it up, over in the book cliffs, we heard about wild horses, herds of wild horses out there. And so we took uh, my Jeep, my Jeep's name, Charlie, um, he's a great adventurer as well, <laughs> and we so we take Charlie into the book cliffs, and we're driving on the these, just a road that's basically a stream bed, it qualifies as a road, so we're Driving any place we weren't supposed to, we're going up the stream bed, and then we notice we stop because we notice up on the ridge above this canyon is a, like a wild there's a stallion up there. If we I see our first wild horse, a stallion up there on the ridge line, and he's up there, and he's kind of seems to be freaking out a little bit. And so we stop, we park, and we we get out of the jeep, and then the stallion comes running down the hill towards us, and we're wondering what is he going to do. And then we suddenly, before he reaches us, we hear the sound of another herd of horses coming up the same canyon to where we're at. And the stallion like runs and catches up to this group. And as soon as the group appears, the stallion comes down to where they are and basically stops them, basically to warn them about us. And so this is the first time I've really saw intelligence, like, ext- like extreme intelligence among a herd of social creatures. And the stallion talks to the, the mayor. He's he's talking in some sense. He's talking to the mayor because the mayor was the 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 head of the group there. He's talking to the mayor, and I can see these other um, personalities there in the group. There's a a young buck who's kind of impetuous and wants to kind of just you know keep going ahead, but the mayor kind of like nickers at him, and he he kind of calms down a little bit. And then the mayor starts like kind of dividing up the group and starts sending members of the group up towards us, and. They end up going um, just up the canyon about 10 feet above us on this kind of like sideways route to kind of get above us and then drop down in the canyon ahead of us. So she, the mare sends them off one by one up this route there. And then finally, the, the stallion goes and the mare goes last of all. But seeing this communication and their strategy and how many different personalities there were among this group, it uh, it, it floored me and it made me see animals in a completely different way than i had before
2: yeah that's amazing yeah yeah it's hard to uh it's hard to imagine that the animals are you know sitting there with the ability to communicate but you see a, a situation like that and the way you laid out and there obviously were you know there was some form of communication going on between them and uh you know just sit there and witness it that's pretty cool
0: yeah so colorado i absolutely love colorado i worked for a year in rocky mountain national park and just kind of leading uh, families and groups up to some of the peaks and some of the lakes that are up there, and it was a fantastic time. Like that is a great park for you know you hike up a thousand or two feet, and then you're on a ridge line, and you can just you know pick off about six or seven peaks along the way. And I'm kind of a peak bagger, but I'm not the the way the reason why I climb up to the top of the peaks is more for the views. And the views and the the scenery is what really interests me up there. And because there's so many peaks you can get to, it's it's kind of easy to like to stay out too late out there in Rockbound National Park and try <laughs> to claim one last peak before climbing down. Uh one time this was in the Never Summer Range, and my friend and I were eyeball we're on peak number six and we're eyeballing peak number seven and wondering, all right, should like can we reach this one last one? Uh, but meanwhile, clouds are building off to the west. It was getting a little bit darker, and while we 're- deciding on this last peak we we hear this crackling sound, and our eye we're wondering where it's coming from, and then our eyes slowly kind of turn towards my friend's hiking pole <laughs> and we lean into the hiking pole, put our ears to it, and then we hear the crackling like coming from the pole <laughs> That's the worst feeling isn't it? Oh, uh, I know. And so we just go run and we turn and we just sprint down the hill while like lightning is crashing all around us and we, we, we make it, but it's, it's way too tempting to, to spend too long out there in Rocky Mountain National Park. Beautiful place. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, you're talking about my backyard. That's uh that's about 25 minutes up the hill for me. That's uh it is a, a beautiful place. Absolutely. Yeah. We had that experience on top of Pike's peak. We climbed Pike's peak, uh, down in colorado springs and uh you know finally resting at the top and of course pike's peak you can drive up too but so we're standing around there with all the people that had driven up and and relaxing and all of a sudden you could feel your hair standing on end is just starting to rise yeah <laughs> oh man it's time to get out of here <laughs> yeah it's never a good feeling
0: yeah a lot of my closest calls have been in uh rocky mountain national park too there was a uh, wow two times in the kind of this close to the same area uh once was coming down from um Peak, speak and it was maybe a little bit too uh early in the springtime when i was doing it and um you know, on, on a cliff kind of above a snowbank. And so I, you know, I take the cliff because it's free of snow for a while and make some good progress. I'm kind of heading down and trying to end my journey of after climbing the seventh peak. And so I'm trying to escape now. And eventually I have to hop down off this kind of cliff onto the snowbank. And when I hop down, I realize it's not snow, it's ice. <laughs> and my feet just shoot out from underneath me. And now I'm sliding down this, this pitch of, of ice. And in front of me, there is a cliff about 50 feet ahead of me. And so I I flip on my belly and try to like scramble with my hands. I have no crampons, of course. I don't even have any hiking poles at this point. (laughs) And so I'm like scrambling with my my clubs to try to get any purchase, any grip and nothing slowing me down. And so I, so I'm probably about like 20 feet away from this edge here of this cliff. And i And with my feet pointing downhill, suddenly I feel my whole body stop and my whole body swings around and suddenly I'm facing towards the cliff and I come to a halt. And the reason why I stopped was my toes had caught in some kind of little fissure in the ice there and that stopped me. And my body weight swung me around and gravity pulled me down, but I was able to stop and thankfully because I stopped, I was able to stand up and have enough, you know, friction to actually step off the ice and go, get over to safety.
2: <laughs> That's insane. Well, one of the things I, you know, I have to chuckle about is your, your book was littered with stories of you passing by other climbers or, or meeting other climbers on the trail. And they're out there with helmets and crampons and ice axes. And there you are with, you know, probably your your small backpack and a pair of uh, half-worn sneakers and just saying, well, you know, I don't really need all that stuff. (laughs) And then you relay some of these stories. It's like, man, you know, an ice axe will go a long way here.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, all that stuff of not needing that gear, it's true up until a point, but... I finally have gotten like acquired, gradually acquired gear. I, I, I you know, this gear can be expensive. So right. in order to, you know, be able to afford to do these trips, I, a lot of times would go without gear or I'd use a, find a, sh- a shard of wood from a miner's cabin and use that as kind of like a nice ax. <laughs> but I eventually got crampons and, uh, because I, this past summer I was able to climb Mount Rainier. And when you get to that level of, of dangerousness, you finally have to wise up a little bit and, and get the helmet, get the ice axe, get the crampons.
2: Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs>
1: Bent Gate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bent Gate carries the premier brands including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rossignol, Solomon Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the back country than ever. It's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check BentGate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events.
2: While doing your holiday shopping this season, be sure to stop by 180 tackcom and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 Stove and 180 Flame are made right here in the United States and are sure to make your loved one a happy camper. Visit 180 tackcom today. talking about climbing you know this can be done inexpensively as you've spent much of your life doing it that way but mm-hmm. if you know if somebody said well you know i want to go try some of this stuff but i don't want to throw caution to the wind maybe i will you know invest in a, an item or two to help keep safe what would your recommendation uh, be for somebody starting
0: out on it what, what should they do well i wouldn't I probably would not give many tips or tricks involving, uh, hiking and hiking with minimal equipment, because if you've got the money, you have got the gear, I would buy the crampons. I would buy the ice axe. I would buy the appropriate sneakers. And (laughs) so I wouldn't ever recommend doing the hikes I've done with that with as little equipment as I've done, but I can give advice about, uh, car camping, um, car camping comfortably. I would, uh, Number one, a bit of advice would probably be to buy one of those inflatable mattresses for 20 bucks, the ones that blow up and they're about 10 inches thick when you blow them up. So a full size inflatable mattress and put your tent on that because these dispersed campsites tend to be, it could be pretty rocky, pretty bumpy. And so instead of trying to find the most flat area of, of all or trying to search for flat places or try to remove every rock and every pine cone, Just uh, blow up one of those mattresses, throw it on the ground, and put your tent on top of that, and then you've got – it's incredibly comfortable. It's very luxurious. And so I would – like I do this all the time, mattress, then tent, and then I sit inside my tent, and I have one of those uh, Crazy Creek chairs. I guess they're called uh, stadium chairs, the ones that's kind of two pieces of foam attached with a little bit of uh, uh, webbing. Right, And so, yeah. Sitting there with my laptop that I've charged during the drive, and just watch a movie, and uh, and uh, it's 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 <laughs> it's very uh, luxurious, you might say. <laughs> but if you're camping like every and every night, you don't want to be uh, camping on rocky ground where you're going to hurt your back.
2: Oh you know? yeah, no, it's a it's a really good point actually. It, it might sound a little funny, but. You know, a good night's sleep before you do a full day hike, you know, like that is it makes a a world of difference. If you have a a rough night of sleep and you wake up in the morning and you're groggy and, you know, one, you're not going to enjoy it as much Two, you know, it just it's it's very tiring if you don't get that rest. So I'm with you on that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Here, here. (laughs) Exactly.
2: I got to admit to cheating i I just recently built out a uh, an overlander van, you know, kind of like a mini sportsmobile, so I made myself a, a a very comfortable bed in the back of this thing. It's all weather protected on the inside and lifted uh you know four inches it's a an astro van that's that's lifted and has everything oh, with nice. it so got the awning set up and everything so I went to the to the extreme uh, luxury. <laughs> side, so I can't uh, poo-poo your air mattress part. But that's like awesome. I said, that you know that's how you roll out there, and it's not about the the van or or the vehicle, but it's about being out there and being comfortable, and then going and doing the rough stuff. You know that's what
0: makes it fun. Yeah, if your vehicle is big enough to put a mattress back there, I'd go for it. Uh, the first the first trip I did with um, um cross country trip, we did put a mattress in the back of our of the Jeep, uh, in the back of Charlie, but we had to like move everything out of the back and into the front two seats. It was a big, a big laborious process. Right. Right. All right. So let's, let's get into your book a little bit. Uh,
2: books, um, man, you got a couple of them underway. Now you, like I said, you sent me the second book further off the map. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Just finished it last night. Um, in the nick of time. um, but like I said, what I really liked about it is the the chapters are short, so it's something you could pick up quickly if you want to and just read a little inspirational uh, tale about one of the the outings that you had, um, or obviously can burn through a, a good handful of them, uh, full of them because it's it's great reading. So it it plays out well that way. Um, tell our listeners a little bit more about the books and then I think you had another, um, another one that you were, were working on or was ready to go. So let's hear about that.
0: Sure. Uh, the feedback I've gotten from the books is they are, it's a great book for maybe, uh, um, someone that's recovering from injury it is it was an adventure and they're kind of convalescing <laughs> for a while, or maybe their knees have gotten a little, just a little bit too old to do this kind of thing. So I've heard that it's just great, uh, it's just great nighttime reading. So the chapters are, as I said, short enough that you could just read a chapter before bed and have a little adventure, something about, you know, someone else risking their life instead of you, <laughs> you doing it. And, uh, yeah, between the two books, that's about 110 different adventures out there. Um, in 2017, I'll have enough to put in, uh, put out a third book. But currently what I'm working on is a book about uh renegade car camping. So it's, uh, the book will be called Renegade Car Camping, A Guide to Free Campsites and the Ultimate Road Trip Experience. So this book is actually I'm gonna be able to offer it for free. So if you like if you've read my books, the Outdoor Alpha Map series, and you want to know how to do this kind of thing for yourself, this will have all the advice you need to get out there on your own. So I'll we'll have a section on public lands, an overview of public lands. There'll be a section on how to find like the types of uh, renegade campsites you can find about the gear that's going to help you have a comfortable experience at your campsite, and some other tricks about how to do the whole thing cheaply. Uh, Things like how um, the website CouchSurfing.com is a great website. Um, A little bit of advice about hitchhiking. Right on. So how do people go about getting that book? Well, the first book and the car camping book are going to be able to be um, accessed for free. You'll be able to download those books for free. So if you go to OffTheMapBooks.com, uh, currently when this uh, podcast comes out, if you, um, there'll be space, you can click and put your uh, email address in and you will get the first book, um, off the map. So there will be 55 stories in there and you will be added to the mailing list. I promise I will not spam anybody, but somewhere down the line, when I have the, the Renegade car camping book ready to go, you will have uh, first access to it. So you'll be able to down that load that one as well for free.
2: Right on. Well, count me in. I'm going to put my name on the list before anybody else hears this. Guarantee <laughs> it. I enjoyed the first book. Well, I should say I enjoyed the second book so much. I want to go back in and, uh, and read the first book for sure. Awesome. Well, good deal. So offthemapbooks.com, right? Yes. All right. Is there any other place uh, people should follow you or is that just the best place to, to find you at this point?
0: Uh, that's the best place on facebook i'm also at off so if you want to see more pictures you can look there or also on instagram um the uh the name is also off the off the all
2: right right on i'll get all those urls and put them in our show notes as well so it makes it easier for those people driving around and unable to to check you out right now all right well i want to go into a couple more stories um I don't want, like I said, I don't want to give the book away, but there's some really fun ones in there that I'm hoping you'll, uh, you'll indulge me and, and, and tell the stories on them. Um, one was your trip on Mount Russell, Mount Russell being a 14,094 foot peak right next to Mount Whitney, which is the highest peak in, in the U S right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I say right now, like, it's <laughs> you never know, you it's never California know. after all, <laughs> but there, the story, uh, on that one, on Mount Russell was intriguing because of the, the, as you described, diving board wide pathway on the other side of this drop-off, There's a thousand foot drop-off on one side, 2000 foot drop-off on the other side. Relay that story for us because I was just, I was, my, my jaw was open. I think I was shaking while I was reading it, actually.
0: Yeah, I have a love hate relationship with knife edge ridges because, like, I love being on high points. I love being able to see everything around me. But this one was definitely uh, the top two or top three of knife edges I've ever tried to go on. And so it's, it's a neighbor to Mount Whitney and you access it through the, the same trailhead. So you have to go up about 6,000 feet to reach the top. And near the top is uh, is this ridge line, and the knife edge reaches a, a spot. You, you can stay below the edge for a good while, but finally you have to actually get on the very knife of it. And there's one rock in particular that's shaped like a diving board, and so it's you know about a foot wide, and you've got to cross it in order to continue. And while you're crossing it, you know you, you're hearing the sound of like wind just whistling through holes in this. Knife edge ridge line because it's thin enough that it, like air can actually pass through parts of this ridge line. so the diving board is scary enough, and then you're hugging rocks and trying to work your way around boulders to try to continue now, Mount Russell is one of the the hikes where I actually made the wise choice of turning back because I did not have the right gear. I was three hundred feet from the top, and I was almost like done like I was done almost done with the knife edge. But unfortunately, about a week, this is September and about a week or two earlier, there was a snowstorm and all the snow had not melted yet. And so all the flat spaces were covered by snow and I, I hit, well, there's just one patch of snow is about three feet long, but right next to that patch of snow on that flat space was, well, it wasn't exactly flat. It was tipped a little bit and then it became tipped some more and then it dropped down a thousand feet. So if I stepped onto that snow, which had a hard crust to it, and I slipped, that was it. I'd be done. And there was absolutely nobody else on the mountain that day. I could just hear the voices of kind of triumphant people around Mount Mount Whitney, about a maybe about a half mile or a mile away. I could hear their voices, but nobody was going to be able to even hear, make sense of my, my voice and get out to, to where I was. So I took, put one foot on that patch of snow and turned around and went all the way back down. is one of the toughest things I ever did to turn around. But, you know, the mountain's still there. And, you know, a lot of times we do things where that seem like, oh, like so hard, I would just never do that kind of thing again. Um, but I guess one thing I've learned is through experiences that, you know, memories kind of, memories of those tough times kind of fade and shift over time. And after a few years pass, the the experience of going back to those places will seem fresh again, and we'll forget how how, how amazingly tough it was. So forgetfulness can be a, a bit of a blessing sometimes.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When I was reading that story, you had uh, you came up to that that narrow point, and you had a lot of kind of internal dialogue with yourself <laughs> before you know, mustering up the the courage to to go across it and. You know, and it, it, it's triumphant at that point when you finally make it across and you come around a corner and it, it, your heart sinks. You know, and as a reader, my heart sinks with you, you know, because you you see this bit of ice and snow that makes you realize that there's no way you're going to reach your goal, which is only a few hundred feet away to the summit. And you have to turn around and go back across that darn diving board <laughs> again with that kind of drop off. But, uh, but I mean, those are the moments that, that make it for you. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's the thing about if you're an outdoor, uh, if you're an outdoor writer, like any kind of miserable, tough, like rough experience, at least you're going to get a good story out of it. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> well, that's good for us too. Yeah. So tell me
2: about Kenya. You found yourself in Africa, uh, on a bit of a surprise.
0: Yeah, the the second book is all U.S. except I believe there's just uh, a couple of k- chapters in Canada, and then there's a section on on Kenya. I've got extremely lucky because I, well, I had a um, friend of my family. He w- he paid for this eight thousand dollar safari trip to Kenya, and it was a trip for just for like semi professional photographers, people that were willing to like stay in one spot and just wait for the right animal to come by for like and just wait there all day. And he was looking forward to doing this trip, $8,000. But about a month before the trip, he fell off a gazebo while he was trying to repair it. And then he fractured a vertebrae. So he couldn't go. For some reason, no one in his family could go. So word trickled out. And I was up in Canada at the time doing some hiking. And word finally got out to me. It went down the chain of this person can't do it. it. This person can't do it. And then it fell on my lap. And I said, Yes, I will do that trip to Kenya. (laughs) Because he couldn't get his money back. That was the thing. It was too close to the time. So he couldn't get his money back. I got to do it in his place. And this guy even mailed me his 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 uh, photographic equipment. So we got to do two weeks in Kenya. And I got to see a lot of different sides of, of Kenya. I, I ended up having to get there a, a day early. And so I I stayed with a couch surfer in Nairobi. And couch surfing is this organization of millions of people across the country that are willing to let you crash on their couch for a night or um, stay in a spare room for the night. And so they're usually people that were travelers before or still want to meet travelers or they're young people that, you know, would like to have that uh, reciprocated with them sometimes. So they offer their, their free, free spaces to travelers. So I got to stay with this uh, this young woman in Kenya and then the next day she, um, she actually dropped me off at a in the slums of Nairobi where there was an orphanage and there was a school for little kids uh, for orphans. It was was an orphan school. And I got to experience what that was like and get toured and be toured uh, through the classes and be mobbed by, by uh, little kids who wanted to swing around on my arms. (laughs) And it was, it was great. And I, then I kind of slipped away. I wanted to, to see the slums for myself. And I went down the streets and met a lot of people. I met some um, some chicken farmers there that wanted to sell me a chicken. And I wouldn't buy a chicken, but then they wanted uh, me to take their pictures and email it to them. Because even though they were in the slums and they sold chickens, they still had email addresses. And I found in Kenya there's this weird um, this weird melding of, of, of modern technology and also very, I guess, um, down to earth, um, ex- uh, uh, existence because there were people that were, it was, uh, people that were dressed in suits that were still like walking through rubble to get to work. It was an interesting mishmash of, um, seeing, uh, billboards for cell phones and then just seeing people still struggling just to make it get enough food. And then after that trip, I, well, I got to do this $8,000 safari where I had Every like two meals a day I had like about six people cooking fresh food for me um right there off the grill and I got to to indulge and feast and I ate probably more than anybody in the whole tour because <laughs> I, I like when I see when I have free food presented to me, I I don't like I, I take advantage of it almost like I'm hardwired to eat food when it's available uh And not take it for granted. So, it was, it was a weird, uh weird issue of I didn't want to appear like a glutton, and yet the food was so great, and I felt so appreciative that I had access to it. And then the, the safari itself was amazing, because the Serengeti is so so filled with wildlife of with such density. And so I was able to see, you know, zebras taking being taken out by alligators as they were crossing rivers, and I was able to see. Um, you know, lion cubs playing with each other while the, the mothers slept nearby and um see leopards kind of prowling in the brush. It was a beautiful, beautiful place.
2: That's cool. That's cool. Well, I have to say that in your writing, you're able to paint that picture like you just did, um, so well, you know that the reader is just able to be there standing right next to you on that trip. And I was very impressed with your your writing skills, you know, in this book. So I, I want to applaud you on
0: that for sure. Well, thank you. I, I had a good group of editors, some of my friends back here in California that helped me out with the editing process just to double check things. And um, because I'm writing about you know mountains every week, I have to always try to find like what's, enough, what's another analogy I can use to describe mountains. And so if my analogies uh, don't quite hit the mark um, that I'm looking for, um, my editors and friends, they do help me out with that process and making sure that I'm being as vivid and original as possible.
2: Well, it comes across well. Great read. Hey, here's a Christmas gift idea. Why don't you head on over to adventuresportspodcast.com and pick up a T-shirt. Get one for yourself and get one for your buddy who also listens to the show. So you have, I don't know if you still have it as of the book, you have a, a cabin or two in Anaconda, yes, Montana. Yes, I do. Yeah. Tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about how you came upon those.
0: Well, a friend that I worked with in Colorado um, moved up to Montana and I heard that he had bought a house for $5,000 in this town. And so I, I, I was amazed. And so I went up there and this town of, town of Anaconda, it's kind of in the, in the Southwest, it's got this beautiful Hitler Mountains Wilderness just outside of town. And the the town has a glut of housing because the main employer used to be this copper smelter. And that shut down in 1980. So it used to be 20,000 people. Now there's only about 10,000. And there's a lot of houses that are um <laughs> are, are empty in town. And so the uh, county um, was trying to get a lot of people to move into these houses and promise to do some restoration work in exchange for getting a really good deal on the houses and my friend lived there year round so he was able to take advantage to get a five thousand dollars house i couldn't because i had to go back to california to work but i did get two thousand two houses there for thirty thousand dollars and uh in california i live in santa barbara and thirty thousand dollars would get you a shed in in santa barbara (laughs) yeah so uh um so I got two for $30,000. Uh, one of them did have a fire in it before I bought it. So I was able to fix up one as a rental. And the second one, I can only get there a couple weeks in the summertime. So I'm gradually working on it, um, fixing the electrical and the roofing and the walls and painting it. And it's, it's meant to be eventually a summer base camp because it's close enough to Yellowstone, close enough to Glacier National Park. And those are two of my favorite areas. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> It feels good to have a little home base, even though i'm I'm pretty far away from it most of the year,
2: right right. Well, I wanted you to tell that story because one of the things I was impressed with was your ability to have this adventurous life on and a a low budget. You don't put a lot of money into this lifestyle yet what you get out of it is obviously so extremely rewarding and to to go. You know, find yourself a, a house and a half, so to speak, you know, for $30,000 and put the work into it and fix it up. and But you're doing this all inexpensively. And I think that's really a, a neat thing for, for people to hear because, you know, they – Everybody thinks that you have to be wealthy and, you know, and make a a ton of money and work your, your fingers to the, to the bone, just trying to make money to have cool lifestyles like this. And, And I think your book really exudes the, you know, the possibility of, of doing this on a shoestring budget, which is, I mean, that's admirable at least. So
0: one thing I have to say to share is that I don't have student loans and that enables so much. I'm so lucky not to have that. And so that makes it a lot easier to save up during the year but no, you don't actually need a lot. If you have, if you're lucky to have a, a, a good vehicle that can hold up a bit on some backcountry roads, you don't need to pay for camping. You can cook for yourself every night and you can take a lot of weeks off. And now everybody has that freedom. Um, granted, a lot of people have jobs where they only are allowed to two weeks off a year. I got lucky and I found this, this career of being an outdoor educator where I work the school year um, position. So what I do is, it's it's very easy for someone who's a teacher. It's a little bit harder for people that um, can't take a lot of time off. But even if you can only take two, three weeks, weeks off and you're wondering how you can do it, um, it's you can do it. If you, as long as you have a little bit of gas money to get yourself into, up into the mountains, you can see, have amazing experiences there for very cheaply.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. For the last story, um, I left... Burning Man and hippies and natural hot springs uh, for the end because I'm sure there's got to be a, a humorous story in among all of that. What do you think?
0: <laughs> oh yeah, Burning Man is such a such a huge subject. Um, uh, hippies, on the other hand, is a could be a condensed subject. I I had heard about this, something called the Rainbow Gathering, and since the 60s or 70s, there's been this annual gathering of, um, they call it the Rainbow Gathering. Of, and after, a, a, it happens every summertime and a few months beforehand, maybe about a month beforehand, perhaps, they, uh, they, they finally online, they release, they tell people about what state it's in. So people leave from all across the country, like tens of thousands of, pe- of people migrate across the country and get to the right state. And then about a, maybe a week beforehand, they finally will tell you where exactly it's going to happen. And these happen on public lands. So it's usually is in the national forest somewhere. And um, so people get there early and they build some infrastructure. They, like create these days. I think they've, they've wised up and they do, and they're smart about it. They, they dig latrines ahead of time. They actually build bridges across kind of sensitive creeks and they try to minimize the damage that they're going to do. And then people start arriving. They build, uh campsites, they build kitchens um to share food with everybody. And when you show up, they say everyone says, Welcome home to you. And it's kind of a homecoming. Now, granted, I've only done, done this one time. I had a friend that also lived in the in the area. She lived in Portland. And the the gathering was in um close to Mount St. Helens in Washington State. So she invited me and we went up there and we uh when we uh, drive, were driving down these roads to reach the national forest it was a bit of a bad luck because there was it was a winter where we had a lot of snow and 3 of the 4 th- uh, two of the three roads that led to the site were actually still snowed in so there was only one way to get there and all the parking alongside the road was was taken we we reached one spot about 7 miles away and people were parking there and walking 7 miles with like carts of gear to to reach the site and we didn't could have believed that it was still seven miles away. Um, uh, so, but, so we put our backpacks on and started walking and my, my friend, she, she's fantastic. She's a trooper, but she packed, uh, she also is uh, like a festival goer and she packed enough gear for like about three festivals in her backpack (laughs) It weighed about, Oh, God, it weighed 70, 80 pounds. And she, we went about 100 feet and she was practically falling over. And so was I, granted. So we, we, we finally believed someone when they said it was seven miles away. So we get back in the Jeep and we drive this narrow, claustrophobic road and it's barely, it's, it's muddy and there's barely enough room for any cars to get around us. And we actually do make it all the way to the trailhead. And I, because I have a Jeep named Charlie who does awesome things and doesn't have high clearance, but can do amazing, <laughs> get up amazing ditches. I'm, I was able to back into uh, this teeny space between trees and slip away and park on one side near the trailhead, and uh, we were able to like enter from there. So we enter the grounds, and this place this year. Uh, the event was happening around a place called Hookum Meadow. And it was just this huge open meadow there. And so people kind of camped in the trees surrounding the meadow. And um, if you camped in the the meadow itself, they told you to get out. (laughs) Camp in the trees where you'd cause less damage. So we stayed there for a few days. And it was a gradual process of relaxing because people are around you and they're smiling and they're being generally warm and open-hearted to you. And if you're like a cynical guy, that's not really familiar with this world where people are being open and genuine, it takes a while for your kind of exterior to crack, but gradually you get more uncomfortable living in this world and your heart starts to open a bit too. And it can be yeah, a great experience. Um, one bad side though, is there are like other young folks around you that when you walk by, they're constantly pestering you for free drugs in case, <laughs> in case you have any on you. Um, so that was the annoying part, but besides that, great experience. On and on the fourth of July, the morning started off with everybody like hushed and quiet. There was for hours in the morning, nobody spoke. It was this weird thing, and finally, at, I try to remember. It was about noon or so. Was there one point in the morning where everybody gathered and held hands in a circle around that meadow, and they started oming, you know, like om. Oh. And they started oming and we're waiting for the last part of the circle to connect. Like people were just, just arriving and just trying to get their hands outstretched and fill in the one gap. And we're oming and oming. And one section of the circle just can't wait for the last, uh, hands to connect. And they just start like whooping and hollering and cheering. And then everybody breaks hands and whoops and hollers and cheers. And my friend Ivy, she is like, she's pissed off because it's like she was like waiting for this huge ohm moment, like unified experience, but you know, they're hippies and trying to get everybody to do the same thing at the same time anywhere is quite an achievement.
2: Uh, <laughs> What's organization, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> that's why they're out there.
2: Well, that's cool. I mean, it sounds like you, you take in all aspects of life and uh, I think that's a, that's a good thing to do. I mean, to, to experience various, uh, details of, of our society is, is uh, makes for a well-rounded person. So good for you for doing that.
0: Yeah. I've been lucky to see those different configurations of, of human culture, like between the rainbow mm-hmm. gathering and Bernie man, which is his own crazy beast of a culture. Um, it's been, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> eye opening to get out to those places.
2: Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. You have a, a a few chapters in there about Burning Man, and I've never really had a desire to go to Burning Man. I have friends that, that have gone in the past and, you know, come back with stories. But after reading your stories about them, I was actually kind of tempted to to go visit that place because it just seems like one thing you need to experience at least once in life. I mean, the, the way you've described it really kind of makes me want to go out and, and check it out. So I might have to do that at some point.
0: Yeah, it's the the fastest way to get to a completely different planet um, without ever having to leave our country. <laughs>
2: well put. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, sharing some of your stories. And I, I would really, really encourage uh, the audience to go out there, visit your site, um, give an email address over so he can contact you when the next book comes out because it's worth it. Uh, like I said, I read the second book. Um, I want to go right back and read the first one. I can vouch for the second one. And the fact that you're giving it away for free is awesome. Um, you know, I think just, uh, one or the other for free would be worth it for sure. But uh, I think anybody would be crazy not to go sign up and, and get that. And while you're there, throw them a few bones and buy the second book. Cause you're going to want it anyway. So pick it up and we'll, uh, we'll get all of the, the URLs in the, the show notes so people can find exactly where you are. Yeah, well, thanks for the support, Travis, and it's been great chatting with you. Yeah, you too, man. Well, take care and good luck with uh, the restoration of the cabin up in Montana, and uh, I hope we cross paths at some point.
0: Yeah, have, a, have some great climbs this, this summer, and maybe I'll see you out there.
2: Sounds good. All right, Brian, thank you. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Be sure to swing by iTunes and Stitcher to subscribe there so you can hear all of their episodes as they become available. And don't forget to share the Adventure Sports Podcast with your friends and family on Twitter and Facebook. Everybody deserves a little adventure in their ears.